Welcome to this episode of the APL show. I'm Adam Botsevsky. And I'm Rich Park. And for, uh, we are going to go into the main content, which is uh, our reaction video to this video that we're about to play. Uh, just a couple of announcements. First thing is you can actually reach us. You can email us on contact at apl.show, which also means you can go on our website, apl.show. And then for some APL news, uh, the APL problem solving competition, the 2023 round has just opened. Don't worry, you've got like half a year to do your submissions and an experienced APL can solve everything in one day. So you even have time to start learning APL from scratch and still participate and win. People have done that before. Yeah, more, more than once. And so if you run out of problems on the problem solving competition, then you can head over to a site called Katis or it's open.katis.com um, and they host uh, both coding competitions and just challenges in general. They actually have a commercial site aside to them where they um, verify people's programming skills for various uh, companies, institutions, um, but they have this open Katis where uh, they have lots and lots of competitions and lots and lots of uh, individual questions and you can compete against others and they have now added apl as one of the systems supported on their backend which means um it gives you instruction and input output works correctly and so on you can participate there yeah i had a bit of fun i did one problem just to see if i could get the input output work and it was a bit fiddly because i'm stupid but it was um yeah got it in the end yeah. It's the it's the it's the each time you do a quote quad gets that's one line of the input that took right. me a moment, right? Uh, it's but not there's like you read a, a file or anything. You have to take. There's a tutorial in their menu, uh, yeah. and then it will say how the input output works. It, it's a stilted way of doing it in APL, but it makes it fair for other languages. And APL will be shortest anyway. Yeah, right. And no, that was still <laughs> it was one line for obtaining input, one line for solving the solving I, the problem. I, I did one where you had to loop, so it's two lines for the loop <laughs> of gathering input and one, and two lines for catching the error condition when uh, when the, there's no more input, and then one mm. line to actually do the work, which is short. <laughs> so, um, and then uh, the coming up in just a couple of weeks is the APL Seeds. Uh, it's on the 22nd of March. You have to sign up for that. We'll have a link to that as well in our show notes and yep. video descriptions and so on. Five um, talks, uh, you, me. Stefan Kruger, Josh David, and Richard Savini. Don't know if I got his name right. Should ask him before the day. Um, yeah, some stuff about you know APL and getting started, and uh, you know sort of thinking in APL, and then some stuff that's more sort of application focused, like how do you how do you actually do real stuff? What do people actually do? Uh, and even if you're an experienced APL, APL you might want to send some people you know to have a look. It's really intended for introductory uh, level um, it's not a conference of people showing off what they what they do in APL advanced stuff it's to get people interested and inspired uh, to use APL so looking forward to that mm. then for those of our listeners who are listening to this as soon as it comes out on Sunday the 12th of March uh, there used to be this recurring um, meetup live thing called the APL campfire where people who had influence on APL's history came and spoke about that. But then I ran out of guests for it and the series stopped. Now I found Norman Thompson who has written books on uh, APL and uh, he's willing to come in and speak about his experience with APL throughout a very long time. That's a live thing. You can participate in that over Zoom. We'll have a link to that in the show notes. And then you have something else, Richard? Uh, yeah, so this month, uh, it says April, April 2023. So I, I don't know how they work out. It's, <laughs> the like, it's like car brands. There. There's, there's some oh, quad I the <laughs> there's, some, there's some off by one uh, issue with you know the month printed versus the month that, that it comes out. But this month's edition of Linux Format Magazine, premier open source magazine in the UK, at least. This is one I used to read at... Um, 
petrol station, you know, service stations on the motorway as a kid. You know, you go through the magazines and be like, oh, that one's about computers and Linux and stuff. So that was cool. So I've got a copy of it here. Um, in this month's edition, there is a pretty substantial article about APL. So it's one, two, three, four. Yeah, like four, four, four whole pages. Um, talking about APL, a little bit of historical context, a couple of user stories, got like uh, Ray Cannon, Romilly Cocking featuring in there. Morton's got some quotes talking about, um, you know, why do people use APL, I guess? Why is it still used and what the advantages and things like this? Um, and Michael Wallace, has he been on ArrayCast? Yeah. Yeah. Um, K and J programmer also talking about uh, why he uses APL. So that was really cool. Cool it's, to see. It's mostly factually accurate too. Yeah. <laughs> nice for a news article. Yes. Um so yeah, that's LXF three hundred, the big three double O. Um, you can get it. You can go and go on the Linux search Linux format, go on their website, and you can buy a copy. Or it's in. I don't know if it's still in many news agents. I don't look in. Don't look for physical magazines these days. I must say. So most people, I think, get it on a subscription delivered to them. But anyway, it was cool to see that. Might be able to find it in a public library. Could imagine they would have. You it. definitely will. I mean, uh, there are a number of libraries in the UK that have a whole thing where it's like they get everything right. that's ever published that they can. <laughs> At least I think that's one of the Oxford things, right? You can like go in there and request the Mr. Men book, you know? <laughs> <laughs> they all have it because it's been published. Yeah. Okay, so um, again, we're doing something new here. Uh, a reaction video uh, to another... We probably should have video. said at the beginning, you know, it's... We, Although we're showing the video and stuff, if you're listening to this, uh, it's a talk with not too, I don't think it's too heavy on the visual content. So you should be able right. to follow along, listen along, um, even but if you're it, just listening. If you like this type of content or if you do not like this type of content, feel free to let us know. So we have an idea about what uh, our listening crowd uh, wants to have in the future. Renu, this is, um, this is a talk from no, the video was published relatively recently. I'm guessing it was the conference a month ago. Year. It was published a month ago, but when yeah. was the conference? Last maybe year? La maybe last year. Uh, an Australian data engineering conference, like, um, what does it say? A community conference for people who are doing, well, stuff that uh, we consider APL's wheelhouse, right? Real world problem solving about data and using computers. Um, that seems to be the topic of the of the event that this talk was given at. Um, I need to. Can you scroll down on the thing? Because you because then I can uh, read. Oh no, you sent me a comment about it anyway. Yeah, it's called data eng data eng bytes data eng bytes uh, whatever you like. Um, Australian software data engineering conference and uh, Shanri Chu is the name that I'm butchering of the person who's given the talk. And the premise is um, change the way you think, change the way you write, I guess, your code, or in general, uh, change the way you think about problems, which is obviously very on brand for the APL show, um, where we talk about notation as a tool of thought. Um, and, you know, he also talks about APL in there, so it seemed it seemed appropriate to to try to do a, a reaction to this. Um, we don't know how it's going to go. We haven't done reaction video before, but uh, you know the format is laid out for us. So I, I say we just we just get into it. We'll probably yeah. Well, we'll see how it goes. I don't think there's much more to say. So far, I'm with it. I hope the. Those are nice sounds. I hope those come through uh, okay in the recording of the shared thing. We'll see. Hi. Uh, so, yeah. You could always splice it on top. Today I'm going to talk about how we solve problems, right? And why we should use more diverse and varied notation when it comes to our data engineering uh, problems. So my talk is going to be a bit different from the rest of the talk you've seen today. And I hope it does give you a bit of something to think about. Um, the slide says, on notation or YAML must die. Okay. So, Not a fan of YAML. Uh, Actually, you hit some... You're a human being. We're all human beings, and the best thing about being human. I mean, we'll get to this in a second, but I do, I do remember that he had some, uh, like a list of recommendations of like, 
uh, here are some commonly used tools and here are like supposedly better versions of them. I wrote that down in in my uh, Obsidian vault full of notes, but I haven't actually spent the time. I, I think I looked at the first couple. Um, you know, we'll get to that, I think, in detail when we get to it, but I thought that was interesting and, and pretty useful. Living can solve problems, right? The difference, the, the thing that makes us different as human beings is that we can solve problems and then we can transmit our solutions. Controversial. Via long <laughs> in the animal kingdom. And monkeys and primates, they can do the same thing. They can transmit solutions to other birds, other primates. Okay, no, he's shouting out the animals. It's fine. <laughs> Only we humans write things down we make videos and we document them for other human beings. So that's what my talk is all about. So I, I don't know if animals write things down or not, because you might not perceive the, the language transmission, like scent markings and things, but I'm pretty sure no. Oh, yeah, that, scent markings count, yeah. Yeah, I'm pretty sure that no animals make videos and put them on <laughs> YouTube. <laughs> I'm waiting on that, on that animal podcast, yeah. We solve problems, and as in, in general, we human beings have an algorithm for that, right? It goes something like this. We first simplify the problem, and we do this by very simple, uh, simply breaking down the problem into, into smaller components. And this is actually very useful for the kinds of problems that are, well, 99% of the problems that are compositional in nature. And for the rest of the problems, we just solve a simpler version of that problem, right? And then the next thing we do is we solve the smaller problems. And the core of solving problems is that we are establishing the rules for how the elements of the problems can interact with one another. So this makes me immediately think of APL anyway, because I very much think of the APL primitives as these uh, solutions to these very simple algorithmic problems. And then you just piece them together in order to make your right, solution. It, right. Yeah. So in, um, well, all, I guess, conventional computer science education nowadays, like decomposition is one of the, like the early skills that you're uh, teaching students and they're using w whatever traditional languages, Java, Python, something. Um, but there is this sort of uh, interesting question that I don't think there's any writing that like lays out in this sort of, in these clear terms um, or this clearly about well, I guess it just depends on the language and the constructs you're provided, right? But when you break down the problems, you get, you, you're you doing so to get to some point at which, okay, I know I can express this thing uh, to the computer uh, to get it solved. And then, you know, APL, sometimes you're able to jump to that step a little bit sooner than you might be. I mean, that's getting possibly less true with certain types of functional constructs, but Depending on the type of problem, it's still pretty true that um, it's what, I don't know, some people have argued as like, as opposed to um, decomposing and then abstracting. No, instead of decompose, well, I've heard it expressed as instead of decomposing quite to that level before you can express that you're able to more directly express solutions uh, in APL, which is sort of, again, True for some things, maybe it's just as awkward for other things. Um, I'm trying to think of an example, but I guess I can I can think of that while we keep going because I haven't got one to hand really. So let's keep going. But reverse an array, one one glyph. These rules are. But a lot of uh, languages have that as a primitive anyway. Rules are invented, and once we've done that, once we've done that, we solve recursively and we combine the the, the solutions upwards and. Um, that's how we solve problems, right? So, as a cultural species, you humans... What if we have no idea how to attack the problem? Like, no. it might be some kind of algorithmic thing where we don't know how to get there. It's the scientific method, then. You, you take a guess, and then you think of... You either think of the implications of the guess, or, in the case of computers, it's generally quite easy to just try it. And then you compare the results with, um, well, I guess in science, it's experiment slash experience. And in computing, it's like, what did you want to happen? Um, but guessing is the common first step there, I'd say, like when you don't know. Experimental and... states in long-lived mediums for millennia. And that's why we've got songs of love. You've got poems of, of, of joy and, and paintings of depression, right? And problems 
are also mental states. And through the millennia, we have gathered a body of knowledge on how to, how to represent these problems in, in forms of diagrams, equation, and code. What you see up here is something called a Wadley map. And it's very useful for exploring problem spaces. And on the left, you have the code uh, uh, representation of the Wadley map. And the code representation is mainly the uh, work of my mate, Olivier. In, uh, and because the map is actually represented as code, it gives you, when you manipulate the code, it gives you more ideas on how to manipulate the map. And manipulation, I think, hints at the I gotta say here, this is a little bugbear of the recent conversations we've been having about like, where I've tried to bring up visual representations of code and people have been like massively, problems that in their brains out of their body, what I'm referring to, is what's, a, what's a polite phrase to, <laughs> to say people's reactions to that? So um, a bit open-minded, right? When I say language, I think diagrams are useful. Python, That's just Java, I don't know. Or English and Mandarin. No, yeah. no. When I say language, I mean the structure, uh, the things that you can describe with rules, right? Which, which, which we call grammars and the elements of the problem, which we call vocabularies, right? These are all languages. So let me give you an example. In a database, you have a column that says uh, the values in this column cannot be null. That's a rule, right? And the values that actually go into the column, those are the, the, the vocabulary of the language, right? Your airflow DAGs are a language, right? But they're an unconstrained language. And if you don't constrain your airflow DAGs, what happens is you, what happens is you can have what is that airflow DAGs? Things explode. Hmm. And this talk this is got subs. mainly about written language. <laughs> and when I say writing, I mean the whole spectrum of reading. Uh, and writing down the symbols and manipulating your thoughts, essentially manipulating your thoughts outside of your body. And this oh, is we can actually go right, right. This is the we have the technology. And things explode, right? But they're an unconstrained language. And if you, you don't just missed this a little bit, I saw, I saw I saw the word airflow DAGs, airflow tags. Mutually dependent tags yeah. are a language, right? But they're an unconstrained language. And if you don't, you know, we also have the technology to search what airflow tags are. But we keep this. Uh, we keep this going because there's a lot of preamble before he gets to um, yeah. showing something. Mainly about written language. And when I say writing, I mean the whole spectrum of reading uh, and writing down the symbols and manipulating your thoughts, essentially. Okay, okay. Outside of your body. And this is. We actually have, we have this, we have this. Airflow, airflow DAGs, D-A-G. So the transcription was right. Mm -hmm. uh, okay. Um, or directed acyclic graph is a collection of all the tasks you want to run organized in a way that reflects their relationships and dependencies. So that's kind of neat. So it's, um, it's looks from the images I'm seeing very akin to it's like flow charts, but I think there's maybe a bit more to the, I mean, this page that comes up is from the Apache software foundation. So I'm guessing there's like a bit more to the syntax that allows you to like define the relationships in meaningful ways. A bit like, um, uh, no, I don't want to, I don't want to make that comparison because I literally have no idea if I'm really reaching at that point. I was going to say about, um, uh, semantic web, right. Where you're like attaching metadata that about like human understandable, but also computer understandable meaning to things. Um, and then allowing the relationships to propagate, propagate that way. But I don't know if it's that dynamic, but I assume you have to like make the relationships yourself. But anyway, it's a real airflow DAGs. It's not just like gobbledygook. It's a, <laughs> <laughs> uh, or, a, or a, didn't mishear that. Just didn't know what it was with DAG, my DAG. Yeah. Um, examples a bit, I'm not going to go into it now because I've, no idea, but yes. So it looks like it's sort of like describing uh, processes and stuff in a general way. You manipulate your thoughts outside of your body. You're in, engaging in system two thinking. So having explained the problem with problems, and let me just share with you what I've been roughly thinking about. Right, you want a notation you can manipulate, to build an AGI which diagrams are also good for. Because we're like, but they're hard to manipulate in a systematic fashion. Yes, yeah. They're good for the exploration stage, though. But you usually just throw things away and then make a new one based on your experience of what you just did. And also for explanation, right? To tell others what's happening. Oh, they're great for that. Yeah. Once you've figured out what the idea is. Very simple. Are there ways of writing down neural networks 
um, that can lend itself to a better understanding of intelligence. And speaking of neural networks, okay, we should link to um, Rodrigo's uh, Dialogue Twenty Two talk, yeah, as well in the show notes because he has a nice <laughs> a taste of what this talk uh, is. About. But also his video series. Yes, a video series as well. I was going to say specifically, Rodrigo has this talk. He's um, talking about having implemented convolutional neural network of a particular architecture called a U-net. And then the diagrams are all in a U-shape. So they're kind of like from the left to the right going down, curving around and then up um, in terms of the diagrams and how that was translated into this kind of after he, as he explains it, fairly intuitive-looking uh, grid of um, the stages. The way Einstein would think about linear algebra, you start spotting the weird um, optimizations that you can do, and you end up with a much faster neural network in the end. And all this by virtue of writing your neural network down in a slightly different way. Now, these are all rather mathematical notation. And from my experience dealing with um, humans, um, mathematical notation kind of scares people away. So the other thing that I've been doing is to represent neural networks in, in a form that is familiar and comfortable for software engineers. And so I did it by... This doesn't this, scare people away. All right, I find this an interesting... Um... Machine learning ML. Like a talking point comes up a lot. Obviously, you get it in school nonstop. If you like, have any sort of aptitude or interest in maths, uh, well, even if you don't, I think everyone has like experienced people saying like, "Oh, I can't do maths. Don't like maths," and that's not anything. I, I don't, you know, I don't think we have the uh, scope or capacity in this <laughs> episode of this podcast to really delve into why that is. But I think it is interesting, and yeah, look at looking at this example. So he's talked about okay, he's shown some examples that are. Um, very terse, you know, symbolic mathematical notation um, related to neural networks. And now he's contrasting that with um, more verbose looking, you know, pseudo English uh, vocabulary. It's got, uh, and it's. This uh, is not a real programming language? Well, it probably is. I'm saying in terms of like the vibe of it, right? It's. And this is what like conventional languages, programming languages look like. The vibe is uh, the keywords are all based on English terminology for the most part, um, like often it abbreviated. Looks like a type or, of lisp. Yes, uh, and it's also got a, a prompt that says lambda greater than greater than, which implies some kind of functional uh, sure programming language. know what that means. You know, for example, to read it out, let x equal sign. That's a symbol. Uh, matrix open parenthesis two comma two close parenthesis of float thirty two with in it open paren glorot n close paren. So you know, obviously, you could uh, apart from like a lot of symbols having one syllable vocalizations, you could argue that like vocalizing any notation is a bit ham-fisted uh, and awkward it usually is um pen and paper and and reading is usually more expedient for most people obviously notwithstanding like people with visual impairments who have to listen to things but you know um, uh, or feel them with their fingertips yeah all right well feelings probably uh, as fast as reading if you're good at it or yeah. like comparable speeds, I reckon. I don't know, but that's just a guess. Um, but yeah, I mean, people... I think, I mean, maybe it's changed nowadays, but I suspect not. I suspect it's getting more this way. People react in a similar way to uh, looking at code traditional languages. Like, it, does, it still seems enigmatic and weird. The only thing that probably makes it sound seem less scary on the surface is like like i said the the use of word like things in the language make you think that maybe you'd have a, an easier time grasping it it's um, just a sense of familiarity right that's, uh, yeah exactly right at the end of the day because we do use lots look... of symbols even when we write in natural languages and right so... or even like on signs and, and things like that and yeah 
and in and whether you're learning you know mathematics using traditional mathematical notation or whether you're going to learn programming uh i feel like there's a similar journey of like slowly picking up um small pieces at a time and then sometime later when stuff has kind of had a t- a chance to um really stew in your brain and and settle down and sediment in nice little crevices of your cranium you've uh you know you 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 come back you read it and you're not scared anymore you're more familiar with it like you say so but his point here is he's saying well you can I mean, the code example he's showing here is not as particularly readable to me but that's i think it's actually very simple there's just some comments there that i have opposed but the code itself is extremely simple that's true yeah um but that's not the point the point here is he's saying oh things can look simple but through abstraction 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 just don't look under the lambda right right so if you actually look into what's below the abstraction then things aren't so simple anymore mm. um Right, you can you can always solve a problem. You can always say I solved a problem in one line of code if you wrap everything in a function. Of course, every programming <laughs> language can do this. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so it's just deciding what level uh, to have that abstraction. Anyway, I've run out of thoughts for that. If you're familiar with Haskell, what happened? Uh, I don't know. Maybe the click went through twice. And then I um, tried an algal descendant language which is um, like Go. I actually presented this as a generic version of Go before. And then finally, I built a surface language for Gorgonia that is essentially an APL. Who here has heard of APL? I have. One. Showing the, the, the classic uh, John Scholes edition APL is a very, Game of very, Life one-liner there. Even though it has nothing to do with the other code that right? he showed. And <laughs> but it's, a, it's, it's become the canonical, look at this weird stuff. Can you believe that this is a programming language? Oh, look at that. It's line noise. It's so weird. What, is, what does this mean as a plus? And this is like carrots and... The generation step is the entire program. But to be fair, when I first saw this, it's it's like, Ugh, and you watch the video, you're still like, Ugh. and then like, I don't know how long it, it was into learning APL. It wasn't that long before I was like, oh, actually, that's not very complicated at all. <laughs> um, when you learn Game of Life. When I first saw the Game of Life, it was like shrug. You like shrug, right? Because you already <laughs> knew APL, right? Yeah. Um, so now he's so this now he's showing something that uh, it actually goes the other way around, right? Where whereas people might see traditional programming languages and go, "Oh yeah, that looks familiar," because lots of English words there, but they don't actually understand what's going on. The, here uh, he's showing a code example of this language he has implemented, I think, where where I immediately go, oh yeah, this looks familiar, because this looks AP, like APL. And then I go, wait a minute, I don't actually understand what this is. Well, it's like a delta, there's quad question mark GN. Yeah, no idea. Quad Which question mark GN 2-2, two, two. question mark uh, U 2-2, two, two. and those get assigned into X and Y, I suppose. And then he's doing an, an inner product, X plus plus times that's, y, that's good that's apl so, yeah that's the sign that so, it says that so far we're with us but then what is what is lowercase delta uh x equals x y equals y check the partial derivative of x equals y so so is he uh, bind does delta bind tighter to x then maybe yeah and so there's a kind of meta notation thing and what are those quad question mark things yep we'll see mysterious and it's here i want to stop for a bit and do a deep dive into notation changing the way you think nope. About a problem. Here we go. <laughs> the APL that I developed is called Inigo. Um, I meant to open source it before today, but things happen, so it will still eventually be open source. And you might notice it's a bit styled a bit weirdly. That's because Inigo stands for. Oh, if we it, can it, find that, we should link. It, it's styled with uppercase N, uh, uppercase I N, lowercase I, uppercase G, lowercase O. So it's, it stands for Iverson notation in Go. Iverson notation in Go. I'll talk about this Iverson bloke in a bit. <laughs> and when you, have a, when you have a language called Inigo, you clearly have to have an interpreter called Montoya who threatens you, <laughs> right? Do you know this reference? No. Uh, it's, um, <laughs> it's called Inigo. So his like, prompt when you start the program says, Hello, my name is Inigo Montoya. You killed my father. Prepare to die. That's, uh, is it The Princess Bride? Or it's um, an old movie. 
the guy called called Inigo Montoya. Wait, so it's a, okay, so that. Inigo like that is I have some initiation in Go, but it's actually a name also. Yes, yeah. And Montoya materializer of names that otherwise <laughs> yield ought. Uh, is that is that um, an acronym for like name generator? I think so. That otherwise, it's yield called a backronym when you do it like that. Yes, yeah. it's a good. I like this backronym. Yep. <laughs> Bit of history. I originally used Inigo as an exploratory vehicle for for a better notation for differentiable programming. Right then, earlier this year, I sort of temporarily lost the use of my left arm. I couldn't type without the arm feeling like it was on fire or electricity going through it. So I thought to myself, hey, why not code in APL? Because you are going to be typing symbols, you're not going to be typing words, there'll be fewer things to type, less pain. So I got someone from Sri Lanka to help me finish the first version. That, that's actually a good point. You know, yeah, less R RSI. RSI. Yeah, even if people say, well, it takes longer to type these, or like you have to contort your hands and so on, but it's actually less typing. Overall, uh, yeah. I used to I used to commute on the the tube in London. That's the the underground train thing, and it's very often crowded. I had a small laptop, like fourteen inch or something, hmm. um, and uh, certainly could not get a seat. But I was actually able to be productive there by balancing my laptop on one hand and then using <laughs> the other hand to type one character at a time. Yeah. And after you um, did a bit, uh, yeah, savage. Was that it changed the way I think about solving problems. So now that I can use my left arm again, um, I started work on V2. So another note about AP, uh, Inigo is that it's a bit different from the other APLs like Dialog APL or GNU APL. There are more symbols, and these symbols are... Shout unique. out, dialogue. And also the thing is the fact that... <laughs> Big up. Trigger differentiation and get the partial derivative of a variable. Just that. So that's also part of the reason why it's not... Yeah, automatic differentiation. People have talked about that. I haven't seen... I think there's some old papers, but I haven't seen anything like... Yeah, I haven't had... Uh, he wrote some functions for doing that. And there's some books I've seen that. And yeah, then, in neural net land, it's very in vogue okay and jay used to have i think uh some of that i think they took out because it wasn't so reliable it was better suited as a library it was implemented mm. in jay underneath the covers anyway yeah so. it would make sense to me to that. well so but that would yeah, be a library side projects but let's get to the meat of the talk as i have alluded to earlier by simply switching my programming language to apl i changed the way i think about solving problems and i think this is very the, the anyone who's one side of the apl marmite coin people <laughs> either like so turned off they never actually learn it or they go oh wow changed or so, they or they learned it for a job in the in the 70s and 80s and they got a bitter taste from looking at like people's you know having to maintain people's like terrible old code bases and stuff so here That's, you're showing the apl logo with a slogan below think different which is yeah. from from apple <laughs> Well, so if, that's, this, uh, if this doesn't get him sued, <laughs> I don't know what will. You know, by the way, why why Apple has used the slogan "Think Different"? No, I don't know that. Oh well, um, it's a it's a reaction in itself to IBM. IBM's slogan is "Think." <laughs> and they, and uh, Apple is "Think Different." And APL, we're gonna have to come up with something else, even though that's kind of our. I mean, Apple's not even that thing different, is it? It's it's like think like every other a Apple user. That's like why they have yeah. a, a monopoly in the US and and um, that whole thing about the like is it green green text boxes or whatever you know in this you know this is like a huge thing in the US where people uh, app, uh, iPhone users hate Android users because if they text someone and they still do a lot of texting, whereas in Europe it's like all moved to online services like WhatsApp, so no one, no one notices this oh. in Europe. But in America, they're still using like their carrier's text services for the most part. And if you text an Android user from an Apple device, the, the messages from the Android device have like an uglier green bubble, text <laughs> bubble, instead of the nice, pleasant Apple, you know, one from oh, iPhone users. So it's like causes this whole uh, tribalism of... You know, hate Android users because and and the and the images are worse quality, but it's also Apple's fault, right? It's not. It's not. But Android they are right? There's a Apple does take a whole different approach to marketing and features and. That's true. It's think different to other things, but like within the Apple ecosystem, it's um, it's also very cohesive and stuff. Yeah. 
Um, but yeah, no, it is it is different. Okay, so now he's showing plus dot times inner product. That's definitely thinking different. Go on, what's he say, what's he saying about it? Symbols. What do they do? In APL, <laughs> me me. Whenever I look at APL code, <laughs> three symbols. What do they do? Here, <laughs> plus dot and times. Now we all know what plus and times do. The only difference in APL is that great two thirds of the way there haven't even done anything. One ten hundred thousand are arrays, and when you multiply them, you're basically multiplying them um, element wise. Side note: I also want to talk about reduction for a bit because it's actually important to how in the product works. Let's say you've got an array one, two, three, four, and you want to collapse this array down into one single number. What do you do? It's so in the classic APL intro. Yeah. Call this summing. Everyone's familiar with this. Element-wise operations reductions. Some will go into inner product. Basically, from there you're like you're running, aren't you? Plus into times, you get a product one times two times three times four. And the reason why I'm introducing reduction here is because it's actually relevant to how inner product works. So let's go back to this. We know what plus and times does. What does the dot do, right? Because it's pretty magical what the dot does. And magic is not good for software development. <laughs> so this is what the dot does. The dot is another function that considers the left and right operator. function. And so it applies the uh, right function first and takes two arrays and multiplies the results together. So you've got A times B, put them in one cell. B I got to say, I remember this now F into one. From, when I, from when I watched this, you know, Couple months ago, and I gotta say, he is um, demonstrating a really good understanding of inner product, and then also in high high rank arrays in a way that I think a lot of APLers, even and myself included, like don't take the time to really grasp. Uh, the, you know, like a lot of people use plus dot times as kind of a shorthand for plus slash vector times vector because that's a yeah. super easy um thing to to grok to to internalize and you know it's super intuitive and then like you're aware that it works for higher rank arrays but you don't uh but it's not just a reduction on this on the scalar application oh it's not in fact i saw and again uh you know if i if i was doing something around this soon i would go back and look at this but like the the um expression of inner product in terms of rank operator is a nice way of explaining it as well it's interesting. That's not how my father explained it to me at all. He explained it very visually and dramatically, which actually makes me react a bit to this. So now he's showing on the left A, B, C as, as a the row. horizontal, yeah, in a, as a row, horizontal fashion. And on yeah. the right, he has D, E, F in a vertical fashion. And that's transposed of how I learned it. I oh, really? thought as the left argument. Uh, this is how I learned it in... Uh, I did... AS, so at half an A level further maths, and there was one module that was, I think it might have just been called vectors and matrices. And we definitely learnt doing it in a product multiplication like this. But uh, the... not transposed from this? No, it was a row on the left and a column on the right, okay. as far as I remember. Okay. Um, but it is but much of a muchness. You just tilt your head and it's, <laughs> you know. <laughs> <laughs> not really. Over transpose. Um... But hold on. So, but now he's these are just single row, single column thing. But if you got multiple of them, uh, da, 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 da. well, yeah. So you, you're now doing when you've got multiple of them, you're doing uh, first row, first column that goes in the corner, yeah. then first row, second column that goes next to it, top middle. For, I'm, I'm doing a three by three yeah, example yeah, yeah. here. First row, third column that goes, you know, first row, third element, and then next, and then you do the second row, first. The second column. row of the result is takes the rows. The second row. So it follows left. the left argument. So I guess yeah, you can see this both ways. But but as, I guess I was at least I'm describing the, it the way I learn it. Yeah. I was seeing the right argument as being the principal one that decides. So so here, in a sense, in from from the arguments to the result, uh, the le the horizontal in this case left argument stays horizontal, and the right argument gets transposed in. Right. That's because in this case you're taking a. Three element vector, I guess, or a one row or one row matrix. Can you do it either way? I don't know how I'd actually 
but, like in, a, in APL, I mean. But, but anyway, if you, and, if you and transpose the arguments, then it will just be the opposite, right? Then the right argument is the one that stays stays in its shape, and then the left argument is the one that gets transposed in. All right. Anyway, anyway. continue. Yeah. And then after that, it will apply the left function. And what does it do? It collapses, uh, reduces the array. And now you can apply this to matrices as well. So the inner products of the, 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 the blue row and the... But this diagram here he's showing. So he's got like a, on the left a, a, a two by three. I'm blown yet? Two row, three column. Actually, yeah, can you pause this and send it back 10 seconds? Two, two row, three columns, two by three on the left. And on the right, it's got three by two. So they can form in an inner product. And then the result in the bottom middle is showing a, a two by two matrix. And then he's highlighted what we were just trying to describe here with the first row of the thing on the left, the, the sort of flat one, horizontal one, and the first column of the vertical thing on the right, um, the plus dot times of those becomes the top left cell, the first cell of the result matrix, and so on and so forth. So I, I know. Which also illustrates here that the shape of the result of an inner product is the concatenation of uh, the shapes of the arguments, but eliminating the two adjacent uh, length vectors. Slightly hard length, to tell only yeah. because we've got the same number of rows as columns. Yeah. Uh, no, but, that, but that's actually the case. Axes, yes. So, or in, in APL terms, it's the shape of the result is a negative one drop of the shape of the left. Mm -hmm. comma and one drop of the shape of the right. Right, right. Anyway. Yep. And the yellow column would be the green, and so on and so forth. <laughs> Just flashing colors. Uh, yeah, that was really our eyes. <laughs> Product works. Well, I say, it's the, right. that's a nice visualization really of the inner product, mind. I think. After using this for a while, I got this Satori moment, right? Where I realized that each of these symbols are... Oh, I had to look up what Satori moment. I pause this because this is this is worth. Uh, this is worth explaining if you're listening. You don't want so Satori, Satori moment. I I um I had to look it up because I'm learning Japanese and one of the tools which I don't use but I've heard of is called Satori Reader, and it's obviously there's some connotation of the word Satori with like illumination and uh, and whatever well you go on the wikipedia article for satori s-a-t-o-r-i um is a japanese buddhist term for awakening comprehension understanding is derived from the japanese verb so, and aha moment. yes okay. this is a aha moment and now he's showing something that looks like an asian style emoticon well, the, the cow emoji well yeah they're called cow emoji in japan but i don't know what they're called elsewhere it's, it's and dot and Yes, with a dodgy font. Yeah, it was kind of handwritten. That was one thing in the uh, very last thing that I noticed in... So recently, internally, we've been reading um, old uh, APL papers, well, Iverson notation ones, like pre-APL, uh, you know, looking at examples of notation and stuff that was written about that. And... Um, there are a lot of relatively low-level examples, right? Things that are about because it's to do with like describing a, a computer system, right? And, and processing instructions and doing actual low-level stuff. But there seem to be like an inordinate number of inner products in those papers. I think compared to what I see in like regular APL code these days, so many inner products. Like loads of stuff is expressed. In like all kinds of different ones as well. I thought that was interesting. That is um, true. Yeah. Oh, there's also a difference. We can go back to that another time. There's a difference in definition of the inner product, whether there's an each or not, uh, in there. And I the definition they uses doesn't use the each, which actually enables certain things. There's a bit of pity that the like APL doesn't. Would that would that have been uh like not an issue back before nested arrays no because because he uses inner products where the right operand is replicate or or compress uh, i see and that you can't do that if there's an each on the function then it doesn't really work then you get a whole bunch of little vectors instead of mm. actually collecting the whole result 
So, but we can get back to that another time. Mm, I think so. I think we'll have to. I don't know how much more of this we can um, we can get through. I told you. I told you how much of this. Well, I guess we've we've gotten to the part that is really uh, uh, for us, right? In a sense. Yeah. Um, so, if we manage to get to the end of this, so I guess we can either decide to come back to the rest of the talk in another episode if people are into that. Or yeah, I think just... we can do about halfway through, and then we can stop and then continue another time. Yeah. Let me show you an example. Let's say we do an inner product of this, um, these two arrays, and the result is 70, right? Um, One, two, three, four, plus dot times, five, six, seven, eight. Left, yes, left function. And instead of plus, we, instead of using plus to reduce, we use concatenate to reduce. So as you reduce, you're actually recreating a new array. Right, now we've got a new array, 5, 12, 21, and 32. Now let's replace the right function. Instead of multiplying, we're going to actually print what it's actually doing, okay? <laughs> about the syntax, this basically says take the left ele element and right element. You can find this type of expression <laughs> often in the APL orchard when yes. people are just getting started. So I often recommend people to replace functions with functions that that show what the result should be. So here he's saying, so you had one, two, three, four, comma dot times, so concatenate dot times five six seven eight and then mm -hmm. of course he's getting five twelve twenty one thirty two because i mean it's essentially just scalar multiplication um although he what he's not showing here is the result being enclosed whatever and now he's replacing the multiplication with a function that instead of multiplying just shows left argument and then multiplication sign and then right argument uh and then He's putting a comma after that, which I guess that's just for visual purposes. Really, what he should have been doing is that it's replacing the comma function with a function that inserts a comma. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but he's yeah. actually concatenating, which means he gets a trailing comma that he shouldn't have. Anyway, so then he gets a, a nested result, really, but you can't really see that. It's one times five. It says spelled out one times five, comma. Two times six, comma three times seven, comma four times eight. Which right, and implicit. Well, for APLers, implicit parentheses. Yeah. Uh, for the for each of those. You could have inserted separated. the parentheses inside the function as well. <laughs> yep. <laughs> and concatenate. Well, should have asked us to <laughs> review. <laughs> yeah. Right. Uh, no, no, it's good. How the whole process of this inner product works. And if my example hasn't hit you on how powerful this thing is, let I mean, this is really nice. This is the type of stuff that I guess we see uh, the likes of what Marshall, Aaron, and Morton have sent to to functional conf. And you got a to change your existing solution programming audience. The way you solve problems, it gives you confidence in exploring, and more importantly, it also clarifies. That's a big thing. That's what we were talking about earlier: confidence in exploring, like uh, when you don't know, right? So. And you're taking guesses, but you can like without too much effort figure out which guesses which way is the right way to go, and then pursue that further uh, without being like, oh god, uh, after like I spent hours writing. Well, I mean, sometimes you do, but you know, writing all of this boilerplate, and now I'm gonna take it all apart because I've decided to do it a different way. Um, when you've got a nice notation to to play with, then it that's less expensive. So anyway. now he's showing a fork. Arguments are C and P, C on the left, P on the right, and then the fork itself is times divided by plus dot times. Which and then in the background image, there's like in the mathematical uh, formula, like which Bayes Bayes's thing, isn't it? Probability of A or B is probability of B or A times but probability of this A. This is not the same thing. Um, well, we don't know what C and P are related in relation to A and like if like it's it's P is probability and then there's two like events. Maybe if this really Boolean, means A, A or B, then surely that's not the same thing as times. It should be A and B. Uh, Probability. Of, I mean, it can't be probability of B and A times probability of A. That makes no sense. Well, we don't know that C and C and B. I'm not sure it's the same thing. We'll see. Yeah, yeah. This is Bayes' Bayes theorem, right? Um, oh, yep. <laughs> Jinx. The array of conditional probabilities and P is the array of prior probabilities. 
right? If you start with the equation in the background, I'm not sure if you can see it, um, and, and you start whittling it down. Oh, it's, it's not or, is it? It's, it's a given that B is true, isn't it? Something like that. In its ah. I would yeah. like to see you do that with so the, the, the vertical bar doesn't mean or, it means... But of course, not all my code looks like this. Most of my code looks like this. And okay, this he's gone from um, uh, a tacit uh, that times divided by plus dot times. Which was pretty elegant. Little fork there, yeah, for Bayes' yeah. theorem, very nice. Uh, to a defen with... Um, Way many nested parentheses and nested defense and not, stuff. Oh yeah, I was gonna say not so too many, uh, but actually it's yes, unnecessarily it's many. many as well. Uh, well, only by a couple. No, but it's also doing unnecessary stuff. Like, like, okay, so we can spell this out. But yeah, go on. It, it's uh, the overall thing. It's better to explain probably what it is. The overall yeah. thing is selecting from the left argument. It's a function called CP. It's selecting from the left argument. And then inside that, uh, we start by subtracting the average of the right argument from the right argument. But <laughs> he could have, but he's doing that by saying omega minus, and then the famous plus slash divided by tally fork on yep. omega. But you could have written that much nicer, I would say, even though it's the same length. You could have written that as right tech minus plus slash divided by tally um, as a, as a five car train. Um, and because, then he's got mixing, around... he's mixing tested and not tested for no particular reason. And there's, yeah, there's a trailing parenthesis. Yeah, I don't think that's too bad. But the parenthesis around you can get of rid that. of. So it's a cumulative uh, sum of the difference between the argument and the overall uh, average on, yeah. the right, on the right. Then he's taking the absolute value of that. And then he's applying a function to it, uh, which is simply finding the maximum the position of the of the maximum the first maximum element in that and so yeah so but which it, but again it's written in a kind of, in in my opinion a very awkward style because what he's doing is he's computing the maximum uh, element value and then he's binding that as right argument to the iota index of function Deriving a new function, which is a function which always oh, well, looks for that be, value. This should be right tack index of max slash. That, that's one way. And then get it. rid of all that defen. Yeah, or yeah, you could have done that. Yes, or you could have, if you really wanted to defen, it's just a, a omega iota max reduction omega. Yes, actually, that's, yeah, it's well, much simpler. But yes, but the, the fork is obvious here. Or <laughs> <laughs> right, I mean, it's actually a, it's actually a hook. Says the yeah, lifetime APL versus this. <laughs> Dude who's just trying stuff out. Oh, but this, but this truly unnecessarily complicated here. This is not necessary. Yeah, but you do. Yeah, it does take experience Why is deriving, to spot he's these deriving, things. He's deriving, but he's the no, he's deriving a monadic function from a dyadic function only to apply it immediately there's no reason to even <laughs> like like you can see that oh right? true but that okay no but i find that with people like who come from functional land they so will they... be composing stuff left right and center rather than writing expressions I see. yeah i i see that not just here i see that in a, in a few cases and it's and, typically uh, if people have come from from or have experience in functional languages right rather than procedural ones or just learn apl and finds a point in time that something happened that caused the mean of the time series to change. To, to the most. Change the a, most. That's the mm. entire function on screen in one line. The equivalent in Python takes about 30 lines of code. And really? it isn't as obvious. That can't be true. If you use maps and list comprehensions. Yeah. There, there, there are. Con yeah. If you. Yeah. I don't know. How do you do a cumulative sum in Python, though? Uh, Math.com sum, probably. <laughs> like that's my guess. I don't know. But... Okay, so, no. I mean, so it's so it's the right argument. Yeah, there's no way that's thirty lines unless you're writing it in like pure for loops. Yeah. With like with like array with like index, you know, looping over the arrays and then. Even for the summation, you mean? So if you do one for loop for the that's all that's what I'm saying. Like you have to really loop eke for this the... out to get thirty lines of Python, <laughs> I reckon. What one for so for loop for the summation, one for loop for the division, one for loop for the subtraction, one for loop for the cumulative. Sum. At which point you've already abstracted each of those away into yeah. like a separate one... function that you're calling within the main body. One one for loop for the, for the absolute lines. value, 
and then we do a <laughs> for loop to re to get the maximum of that, and then we do a for loop. It's not really a for loop. I don't know how you do it exactly, but whatever. Some kind of loop for the, for index. the index off. In index off. That's only no, no. That's going to be primitive on arrays as well, isn't it? Sure, but even if you were to to do that, you could do a for loop and then break out early when you find it. Yeah, uh, that's seven for loops, and since Python uses indentation things, yeah, then surely it seven can't times be more than at least man, eight eight lines, not thirty, but whatever. Okay, no, no, seven times, like three per for loop. Why do you need three per for loop in Python? You just it's one four blah. Oh, can you do it in one? Can you? I thought you had to do four blah 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 new line indent, and then do your thing. So at least two. Yeah, but a lot of it's just a lot of the loops are just for this in that, for this and that, for this and that. For this. Yeah, so if you're using maybe, uh, but the if for you do I in, yeah. Oh, I see. Isn't that a list comprehension syntax? Whereas, it's, like, if you're doing an explicit line. for loop, I, I don't know. Anyway, no, I don't, we don't I, know Python yet. Just... I want to see his thirty <laughs> line solution and then have some Python. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Look at that. But I mean, I'm sure you can write this in one line of Python as well. It's Plus, just, we're being a bit, you know, we're not not against uh, hyperbolic. Um, you know, bad mouthing of a language, <laughs> of a languages in the context no, of promoting IPL. No, we have to be IPL. realistic, right? This is exaggerated. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Is doing S1 anyway. Now, when I say obvious, you obviously have to know how to read APL, right? So clear thinking isn't all. Um, by virtue of having a different notation, right, I discovered or rediscovered some of these things. Uh, the second one is a bit cheeky. Uh, Scholarization of dual rediscovery oh. of differentiation by means of scholarization of dual numbers, which is like this. I know from nothing, <laughs> <laughs> but I think of a great Lobachevsky, and I, <laughs> um, I don't and, know. Um, what you got this S. that's a successor, and then you go to addition, and then you go to multiplication, and then you go uh, to exponentiation. Right? So that's okay, yeah. So that's just like um, iterative. Well, these are the levels. It's a, it's a revolution yes. of this logarithm thing. One uh, drop plus. One drop plus power n is. Plus. Yeah, well, one. Well, we don't have. I mean, we don't have a primitive in APL for successor. No. Right. So you you're modeling it as one drop plus, but then you're already assuming you have plus. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But in J, there's a there's a successor, but. Uh, and then you can derive multiple uh, exponentiation from from there. That's fun. Yeah. So let's go. Yeah, successor. Yeah. Then yeah. Then successor, addition. addition, multiplication. It's sorry, yeah. Addition. Successor is just add one. Uh, addition is repeated succession. And then multiplication is repeated addition. And then exponentiation is repeated multiplication. Right, that's, yes. it in, that's it in words for the listeners, right? Yeah. <laughs> uh, and the last one, various isomorphisms that may be useful for... Yeah, okay. Well, that's, that's pretty typical APL. That may be useful for developing neural networks. Think, think, uh, uh, Iverson calls this suggestivity, right? You know, so far that I've merely talked about the ideas, suggestive ideas, and you relate it. things because, oh, that looks like that, even though I was doing these two oh, things in completely APL. different domains. I like to type symbols, and it really at this point it feels like I'm flexing. So let me flex a bit more. This is, and that's why I'm possibly oh, okay. I'm last, maybe we'll do this as the last flex, but I got one, I'm gonna pause this, I'm one, uh. That's the suggestivity thing is definitely why I think I know um, Aaron Sue is very cautious of like uh, introducing things or using things which are like abstractions and frameworks and things like this because you lose that ability to see that you're actually doing really similar things in two different in two different ways when you've like embedded them in two different names and you're calling them with two like semantically different arguments that mean different things, but then under the hood, oh, it turns out you're actually doing identical things. Or so if you wrote that in raw code, which is not always practical to do, but if you did that sometimes and often rather spot the patterns, you can spot the patterns and you can see. Oh, that would be nice if the ID could do that. Yeah. What would like a pattern match across your APL code and show you where you've done similar yeah. things. Yeah. Yeah. That you may be like able nice to idea. abstract this out <laughs> <laughs> or, or re reuse the code. Yeah. Yeah. Possibly. That sounds like a challenge beyond trivial examples. <laughs> <laughs> it sounds like a nightmare. Uh, Who will write small programs to scratch my itch? So, for example, when I needed to annotate a, a bunch of text documents for a machine learning project in the previous work, 
instead of using external annotation tools, I simply wrote up a small Emacs library and annotated it. Who needs Protege? But that's arrogance talking, right? This solution is not scalable. For one, it's very difficult to train up external annotators to use Emacs. And even if you have a bunch of developers in-house do, in doing uh, annotation in-house, and there, there are good reasons for doing this, not all developers use Emacs. So therein lies the first tension of this talk, um, what we call programming in the large versus programming in the small. This, this concept was created in 1975, and in 2022, we're still not very good at solving it. So I want you to consider a program that is written in Spark, right? By and large, we can consider this a program in the large because it's going to run on many machines, a cluster of machines, and it's the kind of program that many people will touch, right? So the real result is that we have individual programmers who have to follow a rigid set of rules and run the clusters when they want to do and try something, right? It's quite hard to use when you compare it with immediately coding up a solution on your computer. The Spark ecosystem leaves very little room for personal sparks of creativity, which will often solve a problem in a much far superior way. So, the question is this, what do we prefer? Do we prefer to work within a rigid rule set that offers no creativity? Or do we want to work with personal flair, right? It smells like a false dichotomy, but I don't know. ...that I came up with, <laughs> individualistic cultures and collectivist cultures. And in the context of software development, in the context of data science and data engineering, we often have to choose a side. So what ends up happening is the data scientists will all code you know, with personal flair on the Jupyter notebooks, and the data engineers will come in and wrap the processors around it. I, I have a friend whose job is literally this. That's what he complains about. Really? Like he, he, he works in a thing where there's, there's data scientists who write uh, Python code, and blah, blah, blah. And then he's, his job is, he's like a computer science PhD, his job is largely making stuff like productionable and, you know, stable and not made of jank taped together. Has been known to say that software engineering... It's true, domain experts are terrible, <laughs> terrible at writing software. And this quote by Titus Winters, of course. So it depends how, how you can, but they need to be able to like... I, I don't think that has Change to be things. the case. No, I don't think right? it has to be that, the case. That's either. one of the strong sides of APL is allowing domain experts who are not really programmers to get their stuff done. Right, but we still have, I mean, this is like the tooling. Yeah, this is like the hard part of developing good tooling and stuff is giving them just enough stuff to be able to like produce what they want and deploy it in, you know, the ways that are sensible, but like not enough to like give them lots of foot shooting guns uh, left, right and center. And, and, and write yeah. horribly unmaintainable things as their project scales. I don't know if that's a solvable problem, but I certainly see in people that I help with things in APL, people who are domain experts and they're writing their APL code. And yeah, sure, I can I could polish it up a lot, um, but it's not terrible. No, it depends. You know, it can be pretty good. It also comes with experience, which everyone has to fight with anyway, right? You don't. It's you're, way... you're not. Uh, well, so they say, right? You're not. You're certainly not. Um, you're not born with the ability to write good, maintainable, <laughs> scalable software. But uh, it's often, or generally, a lot easier to take someone who has experience in the domain, knows all about that, teach them APL uh, to get the job done, than it is to take someone who's an expert software engineer and not even teach them the domain, but just like even translate the ideas of the domain, uh, give them a spec that they can follow. You know, it's difficult. So it might not be the best code, but way better to get an actual product out the door that works and works correctly than having an, an continuously ongoing fight between the domain experts and the programmers that need to implement it, that don't understand each other, don't speak the same language. Yeah. But you know, you, you need you need a bit of both uh, the knowledge. I mean, right. some some software discipline uh, along with your domain expertise. Right. But you can you can get enough of that to be good, good enough. Do you see what he has to say about this, and then round it off? Yeah, I think so. This is a this is a quote that he's probably going to read out loud. Software engineering is programming integrated over time. 
Maybe we should start with that for the next episode. Very nerdy description. Yeah, if people aren't too turned off by this as a format, I think it was all right. I found, I mean, I found this talk interesting. And actually, it was nice to go back and and, uh, and see it again and be refreshed of, of the things that, that are really cool about it. Because it's a really nice talk in lots of ways. Um, you know, as, as per usual, whether it will... Whether people see this as like a, huh, that was interesting and never... Um, this talk, I mean, people in the yeah. audience, uh, and I never think of it again much, or whether it'll actually inspire people to go out and do and try things which are a bit off the beaten path. It's an open question, but um, hey, it's really nice to see people talking about <laughs> APL who who are not from the APL vendors, the typical places. Yeah, for sure. All the, all the once a year hacker news thread. So for you as listener, if you don't want us to continue with uh, looking at this video and, and others, then uh, contact at APL.show is the place to complain. Otherwise, we might just continue. All right, yeah. Thank um, you for joining in then. Yeah, thanks very much for listening and watching. And um, we'll see you on the next one.